I'm really looking forward to sharing the Word of God with you this morning. <clears throat> We're going to dig into quite a, you could argue, quite a tricky passage, quite an interesting, I think, passage in the Sermon on the Mount. And um, you'll see what I mean in a moment. Let's read it. Let's read. Uh, we're, we're looking at Matthew 5, verses 17 to 26. It's our Way of Life series. Jesus raises the bar on anger. But it's a little more to it than just about anger. And you'll see that as soon as we start reading. So this is Jesus. Uh, and he's speaking, obviously, in the Sermon on the Mount. He's speaking to the, the crowd, listening to him. And his disciples are the core of that crowd, which he's teaching, which is important. The context is largely to his followers. And now he goes on and says this. Verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless you, your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, well, you're, you're, uh, if you've got one, your commentary or the bit in the margin will say, Raka was a term of contempt. So I think we've got to think of a modern equivalent like they're a waste of space. That'll do. So, you know, you say that someone's a waste of space is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of hell fire. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. I told you it was an interesting passage. I hope, well, good job here. You had your coffee before the meeting because that helps. Ping. Um, so you should be ready and raring to go. You need to roll the sleeves of your mind up, but also I want you to open your spirits because this is not just about intellect or grasping something. It's about revelation in the heart, revelation in the spirit, which I believe the Holy Spirit wants to do. I'm going to pray. Lord, as we look at this passage, I pray, Holy Spirit, I welcome you amongst us. I thank you you're here. Just open our hearts, open our minds to see truth and to apply it in our lives. Lord, let us have life-changing encounters with you even as we look at your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to ask two fairly simple questions and then I will pose the questions and I'll answer them. I want to ask, what did Jesus teach about the Old Testament? And what did Jesus teach about anger? And I will take longer on the first one, so be relaxed if you think, oh, he's gone on a long time on that one, because the second one will be shorter because it's one of a number of ways you can build out from your understanding from the first one. And uh, I want you to be open to, to understand something quite important and quite profound, I think, about how Jesus uh, 
expects or teaches us about the way he is bringing in the kingdom of God and what, what impact is on our lives. So let's get straight to it. Let's look at what did Jesus teach about the Old Testament. And I would like to put up a, one text, uh, Matthew 5.17, as a sort of base text to talk from. Do not think, Jesus said, that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So what do you think was Jesus' attitude to the Old Testament? It's very important. It's very important Christians understand and, and work out the truth about what Jesus was saying about the Old Testament because through history, Christians have frequently not got this right. It's a repeated problem, and I think it's still a problem today. Broadly, there are two mistakes, broadly, two extremes that Christians fall into with regard to the Old Testament. One extreme is that they say, well, the Old Testament, let's ignore it. It's nasty. It's confusing. I don't like it. God seemed to be in a bad mood throughout all that time. Jesus has come. Let's just look at Jesus. Let's just get it all from Jesus. Well, clearly Jesus is not taking that attitude, by the way. But just to say, we could broadly call that liberalism or liberal theology. It's a liberalism, if you like. The other extreme is to take the Old Testament literally as a covenant for us and that we are really meant to take it quite seriously. And of course, you get in quite a mess that way because which laws do you take seriously? So you get very Sabbatarian, you know, keeping Sunday like a rigid Sabbath. You can say this and that, but then maybe you probably don't pick it all up. Probably have clothes that are sewn from two sorts of material, you know. And so it all gets very confusing and heavy and odd because whatever bit you take most literally makes you odder than another group. And that is a classic mistake. And we could call that legalism. So there's the problem of liberalism. Forget the Old Testament, just go with Jesus. Or legalism, let's take the Old Testament as speaking to us. And these are rules that we could keep. And people will quote what I've just read and say, well, Jesus said it's all relevant. So let's work out how we apply that. Well, the result of that, historically, and it, it sadly is, is not uncommon even today, but historically it's certainly not uncommon, is that you get Christians, real Christians often, who behave in a way that doesn't honour the gospel, is unchristlike, it's either ignoring uh, moral things and, and playing fast loose, just focusing on a bit from Jesus in the New Testament, or it is, as I say, creating a, a legalism which can be heavy and confusing and misrepresent the gospel completely. But in these verses, Jesus confirms that he sees the whole Old Testament as important. In a sense, he puts his seal of authority on it. When he talks about the law and the prophets, that's a sort of summary of the Old Testament, in a way. It's often how they refer to it. And he's saying it's all important and none of it is abolished. And so let's just say right at the beginning, you cannot say, you shouldn't say, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and I'm a follower of Christ, but I'm not interested in the Old Testament. I don't think it has anything to say to me. That's just not right. And it's not relevant. You can't say that because Jesus clearly didn't. But we've got to understand, well, what, what is it then? This is why it's an important question. What is it? How do we handle it? How did, what's Jesus say? Well, I would say to you, the key word in the verse I put up is fulfill, not abolish. The Old Testament is fulfilled. Jesus and the New Testament and New Covenant, it's all about fulfilment. It's not about abolition. It's not like that there are two totally separate 
revelations, Old and New Testament, they're contradictory, they seem sometimes at loggerheads and all the rest of it. How do we handle this? It's no, the Old and the New blend together. In fact, someone's once said, the, the New is in the Old concealed, the Old is in the New revealed. Or perhaps put by a, a bishop, J.C. Ryle, Victorian, great godly man, he said this, the Old Testament is the gospel in the blade, the New Testament is the gospel in full ear. Now, obviously, you've got the images about wheat. So it's just a little green shoot. The Old Testament is the gospel in the blade. The New Testament is the full ear. So that we're talking about something that comes to fulfilment and is fulfilled in Jesus, not abolished. So I want to ask a secondary question, which isn't on the screen. I'm like, how did Jesus fulfill the Old Testament? How did Jesus fulfill the law and the prophets? Now, we haven't got time to go into this in detail, but I'm nevertheless going to touch on five ways that Jesus fulfilled. But it will be quite quick, so that's why you needed your cup of coffee. One, Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament in many ways by, by being who he was. He was a prophetic fulfilment. There are many things in the law and the prophets that pointed to Jesus. Sometimes these are called types. In other words, they're God-given prophetic pictures. So, for example, Jesus is the Passover lamb. That points to him. He's the lamb of God, uh, the brazen serpent on the pole that Moses lifted up, and many others, the high priest. They point to Jesus. In other ways, he, he literally fulfills the prophetic a picture of the Old Testament. He is the Messiah they're looking for. What Isaiah is writing about, Jesus is. So in many ways, he is the fulfilment of what the law and the prophets point forward to. That's one. Secondly, Jesus, and this is fascinating, this is, this is I think, exciting, and it's going to prove even more exciting as we follow through. Jesus fulfilled in himself everything that God was after in the law. He was the embodiment of everything God wanted in a human being. You could ask, you, ask yourself, what is holiness? What is holiness? What is righteousness? What does it look like? What does holiness look like? Is it, you know, making sure you've got the right clothes on and don't cut your beard or don't get tattoos or, you know, is it doing this and doing that? I tell you what righteousness looks like. It looks like Jesus. So, Righteousness looks like, not physically, you don't have to grow a beard and it's difficult for you ladies, and you don't have to have a, a long robe. It's, the beha- it's Jesus is what holiness looks like. When Jesus was on earth, the Father, several times, but you've got one record in Matthew 3, the Father said this, from heaven, God the Father, this is my Son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Basically, God said, that's the one who's doing it as I want it. That's what I've been after. That's what's lacking. That's what, that's what it should be. <laughs> this is my son whom I'm well pleased. So this is true righteousness. In a way, he fulfills everything I've been looking for. There's that. So that's the second. Third way. How does Jesus fulfill the law and the prophets? Well, for you and I, the law's demands are scarily clear. The law says... If you don't live up to God's standards, you are under the judgment of God, the wrath of God in judgment. Jesus fulfilled that judgment for you and me. He bore my sins in his body on the cross. With his stripes, I'm healed. He bore my stripes. So 
So the law condemned me, Jesus took my condemnation. And that's profound. He, is it worth, fulfilled the law. The law's requirements for me were actually, the law's demands were fully met in Jesus. So there was a demand on you and me which fully met in Jesus. Let's use an illustration, a simple one from a court. So let's say you are in debt for a million pounds. I suspect most of us, there is no way you're going to pay that off. Let's go back a little bit to a less tolerant time. You're in front of a court and you will be found guilty of this. There is no second, there's no possibility you're going to pay this debt. And therefore, in our own country, 150 years ago, you'll go into a debtor's prison until you can pay it. Well, you're never going to pay it. So that's your life. It's going to be in this debtor's prison. You owe a million pounds. There's no way you're going to pay it. A benefactor comes and out of their resources pays your debt to the court. The law is satisfied, actually. Against your name, there was a debt of a million pounds. The law in itself is not that bothered, you could argue, where the money comes from. You owe a million pounds. I mean, if someone had lent it to you, your mum had lent it to you, again, it's unlikely, you know, that would have been okay. The law just says, you're a debtor, you're going to go to prison. Someone comes in and says, here's a million pounds. Law says, okay, you're okay. Debt's paid. Now, that is what Jesus did for you and me and fulfilled, if you like, the law's demands when he died on the cross for us. That's the third. Fourth, because it gets better. It goes further. We put our faith in Jesus and we enjoy what I've just spoken about. Our condemnation is gone. The law's demands are fulfilled. But now, with that, God, through Christ, gives us something beyond that. He imputes, that's the word in the Bible, imputes, gives to you Christ's righteousness. Now this is almost, indeed it is, humanly, too good to be true, but it is true. So let's look at a couple of verses. One you've seen many times, I like this verse, as you know. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, pop that up. God made him, that's Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us. So he, he wasn't judged for his own sin, he was judged for your sin and my sin. So that in him, when you put faith in Christ and come in him, we might become the righteousness of God. So you've had given to you his law keeping, if I can put it that way. He fulfilled the true righteousness the Father wanted. You know, in him I'm well pleased. Well, now that's over you. In you I'm well pleased. I see you in my son. Christ. Let's take another angle on the same truth from Romans. Same thing. This is about Abraham. The first hymn is Abraham. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, he's quoting from what was said to Abraham, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised, him there is God of course, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Just let that sink in a moment. Just let it sink in. This is for us. He said this, the Old Testament was pointing forward. The reality is in Christ. And, and he said, God will credit us with righteousness when we put our faith in Jesus, who was raised from the dead. If you go back to my court illustration, it's, it's even beyond our expectation. Here you are, you're a debtor, you owe a million pounds. Your benefactor, Jesus, writes off out of his resources your debt, million pounds. But then he credits your account with 10 million. That's what credit means, is it? 
Credit your account. I, know, I think we all know what it means to credit you. I, I was, use the illustration. Marion um, likes to order things regularly online. Usually about out of five, four go back. So we keep getting our account credited from all these people who have to send the money back. So you have credited to your account Christ's righteousness. I mean, it is beyond belief, but it isn't. You can believe it, but it is beyond human calculation. It is a radical gospel that we believe, and this is what has happened. You have credited to you his righteousness. So now we're going to move to the fifth thing. How does Jesus fulfill? Because it all begins, as I hope you'll see, to weave together into a magnificent truth. So what's the fifth thing I'm going to say? Well, Jesus fulfilled the law fully for us. He met the law's demands. We've seen that. So I'm just picking up the last couple of points. Jesus credits to us his righteousness. That's imputed to us. But even more importantly and amazingly, Jesus has opened the way for you and I to have the Holy Spirit inside us. His death, his resurrection, his ascension, and the Holy Spirit came. And you can be born again of the Holy Spirit. That's what happens when you become a Christian. You're born again of the Holy Spirit. You can be filled with the Holy Spirit. You can walk in the Spirit. And you can produce the fruit of the Spirit. And we're going to dig into this for a few minutes because this is what happens when you become a Christian. And as a result you begin to live in a way that you could never live under law. Never. It's not that law set a standard. You know, law set a standard we couldn't keep. The gospel brings us to a standard way beyond that. It's a little old poem that I love to quote from John Bunyan. Uh, Run, John, and live, the law demands, but gives me neither legs nor arms. Better news the gospel brings, bids me fly, and gives me wings. It's beautifully put. It's right. Actually, the standard is fly, love your enemies. <laughs> what? I couldn't even, I mean, I just about stopped murdering them. <laughs> love them. But how? I'm going to give you wings. I'm going to change you from the inside. The Holy Spirit's going, now let's, let, let's look at a passage in the Bible that helps us to understand this. Let's look at Romans 8. Now, this is a little chunky, but it's really worth it. So bear with me, because it sort of brings these things together. This is for us as Christians. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right, let's hold that. That's one of the things we've already rejoiced in. The condemnation that was justly yours and justly mine as sinners is removed because Jesus has died for our sins. And that means the law's demands are satisfied. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh. That means the law that told you this is a standard of righteousness that you shouldn't, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, you know, uh, love your neighbour as yourself, don't cover it, you know, let's take the hard ones and then the slightly easier ones, don't murder someone, but even, you know, don't lie, most of us don't keep that. You know, why couldn't we do that? Because of the weakness of our sinful flesh. Jesus could. He did everything, but we can't because we've got sin in our flesh. So it, it, the law was okay, but we weren't. Well, so God provided an answer. How? God did this by sending his own son in the likeness of sin for us as a man to be a sin offering. Ah, that's the bit where he takes my condemnation. It is. 
And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that, now this bit is so important, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Wow. So God, through Christ, has provided a means by which you can live in a way you could never begin to live under law. Is that not awesome? And you say, oh, I find it challenging. Yes, you should find it challenging. So do I. But let's get... The way to respond to the challenge is to believe the truth, not to start analysing, well, I'm not as good as I should... I'm not telling you about sinless perfection. I'm telling you where you're headed when you're a real Christian. You walk in the spirit and you do not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You will not fulfill the lust. Not a do not, you will not. <laughs> Let's put it right. Walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The Holy Spirit producing you what? The fruit of the spirit. You heard of that? Gentleness, love, joy, meekness, gentleness. In other words, against such there's no law. This is at a different level. This is flying with the wings. It's not running without arms and legs. So what happens is the fulfillment, if you like the word fully is there, the fulfilment of the law is met in us as we walk in the Spirit, as we are people of the Spirit. This is what Jesus did for us. It's amazing. And we will move on to the second question because it begins to show you how it works. Because Jesus is talking at a different level to the level that the Pharisees and the others would have said. Let's move on to what Jesus did Jesus teach then about anger. And let's use... One verse again, as a little bit of a, a base verse. Matthew 5, 22, thank you. Jesus says, I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, you know, you're a waste of space, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Right, let's think this through. Jesus is showing that what God is concerned with is our inner motivation. And that will come out all through the next little passage. This is the first of six things which bring this sort of sense home. Let me just flesh it out a bit. Several times Jesus uses a phrase, but I tell you. He does it in verse 22. But I tell you. And this was a startling authoritative phrase. And that's the sort of thing that got the Pharisees very cross because what Jesus is doing is bringing great authority to what he's saying. In effect, you are hearing the voice of God through the Son of God. And Jesus is saying, this is not merely an interpretation, it's not merely an opinion. He's saying, I'm telling you what this is really about. That's what he's saying. I, as the voice of God, the Son of God, I'm saying, this is what the Father is really interested in. You see, what happened was that the, 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 the Pharisees, and you know, what I'm about to say sounds quite reasonable, really. The Pharisees and teachers of the law would say, right, the law says you don't murder. So if you murder someone, you're going to go to the law courts and you're obviously a villain and a bad person. If you avoid murdering someone, you are righteous before a human court and before God. You'll be fine. And obviously multiple other examples. Jesus says, that is just so untrue. <laughs> he says, what the father's after is he knows murder starts in the heart. It starts despising, hating people, thinking they're less than you. They're not worth, you're more important than they are. Bitter anger, uh, uh, you know, party spirit, all sorts of things. That's, that's the root of it. 
And the Father knows that. Actually, we're all sinners, every single one of us. We can't avoid, in our hearts, sinning. We do. You're going to find other examples, lust and whatever, coming up. You know, if we treat this, that's the law of Moses, this is the law of Jesus, we get into a terrible state. So now, by external effort, I've got to, the standard was there, now it's here. It's condemning, it's daft. I mean, you turn it into daftness. Fool, you can't call anybody a fool. Can I call them a twit then? Ah, I call them a twit, but I'm not doing fool. That's where legalism takes you. And it becomes, so Jesus is not really setting a new higher standard of rules. He's saying the Father is after your heart. The problem is in your heart. And in the end, it's in your heart. The answer will have to come. You see, as I said, the Pharisees treated it legally legally and literally, which is sort of how we all do. And we like it like that. So what are the rules? If I can keep them, I know I'm a good boy or a good girl. But that, Jesus said, actually, murder? It's not about murder. It's about your attitude. And your attitude to people, hating them or writing them off, that's where murder starts. That's the real sin. Murder's just the fruit of it. It's a worse sin, possibly, at one level. And then Jesus says, and the court you need to worry about is not human courts, it's God's court. That's what he says. Anybody who behaves like this says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. What's he talking about? He's raising the whole thing up. He's raising the whole thing. He's saying, actually, the issue isn't, can I not murder someone and so be considered a good person? The issue is, what about your heart? And if you don't have a solution to that, you're in danger of the judgment of God, which is setting up for the gospel. Scripture interprets scripture. You need to read it in context. You need to link it with other revelation. The Old Testament, Jesus, the New Testament, the letters. We weave them together to understand what's going on. Jesus is opening up the whole thing of the kingdom he's bringing in. He's saying, my people, new covenant people, I've got to live at a different level. I'm, I'm coming from the Father to show you what true righteousness is and to bring the answers to the real problem, which are internal, not external. You see, if we do have an external approach, even to this passage, you can quite quickly end up thinking, well, it's all a bit of a contradiction. Because Jesus called people fools. Paul, the apostle, calls some people fools. Ooh, well, go on then, where's that leave you? Oh foolish Galatians. Jesus, you fools and slow of heart to believe. Ah. You see, when Jesus and Paul were doing that, they were expressing concern, a genuine heart concern for people who exercise spiritual blindness and lack of faith. Now, they weren't hating them and writing them off. But immediately, this all tells you, this is not about some superficial thing. What words can I use and can't I use? This is about something about heart attitude. Let's take anger. It says, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. But then in Ephesians 5, 4, I beg your pardon, verse 26, it says, in your anger, do not sin. So clearly, anger and sin are not exactly the same thing, which they aren't. It's anger that is unrighteous, that's full of selfishness and vindictiveness and hatred and vengeance and self and pride and desire to prove yourself and pull other people down and all that. That's awful. And so much of our anger gets like that. But it is possible, and Jesus and Paul and God display righteous anger. It is possible to display righteous anger. Righteous anger is not vindictive or vengeful. Righteous anger doesn't centre on me and my issues. It centres on sin, injustice, harm done to other people, dishonouring of God. 
That's what sort of thing it focuses on. Righteous anger provokes righteous action, moral action, passion to see the right thing done, to see evil stopped, bold action, sacrificial action, godly action. So it's not purely true to say being a Christian means you can never be angry. If you, if you drive yourself into a legalism, you get very funny, you get very controlled. I don't like you, sorry. I'm a bit, it's a bit unkind. I don't, he can, he's broad shoulders. I don't like you, but I'm not going to tell you because I can't call you a fool, even though I think you are one. Because <laughs> I'm not going to say it. And, you know, I'm really angry, but I'm not going to show it because I'm a good Christian. Now, now actually, no, I need to love the guy and a bit more. Jesus says, I'm going to tell you how you should behave. It's in the next verse, it's 23, 24. He says, actually, if you've got a problem with your brother or sister, you need to go and be reconciled to them. Make peace with them. In fact, Jesus said, God, because he's speaking for God, is not over-impressed with your religious, act- religious activity if you haven't done that. That's what it says. It says, if you're going to take your gift to the altar and you realise that there's a, re- uh, there's a relational problem with your brother and sister... Stop going to the altar, put, put that away, and go and be reconciled first. I mean, that is quite a challenge, but it's how we're to live as children of the kingdom. We do not think it's okay to come and worship together whilst we are spitting feathers about our brother or sister. James, God, bless the Lord, oh my soul. No, actually, stop singing bless the Lord, oh my soul, and go and make peace with James and show the love of Christ to him. Now, that means I've got to do some work on myself. It means I've got to think, am I right to be angry? What's wrong with me or is it him? And and I've got to be honest with him and honest with myself and open. And we can be like that in the new covenant, in the kingdom that Jesus is bringing in. He is certainly raising the bar, but he's changing the whole game, actually. It's not about bars being raised, so we've got to jump higher. He's changing the whole game. It's working on a different basis than ever before. This is kingdom life and it is totally different from how the law works. It's the only sort of righteousness that God is, if dare I put it this way, is interested in. And that's what Jesus is making clear. He's saying, look, the Pharisees and the scribes, they, they're very good at giving you all these external laws, but you've got to, your righteousness has got to surpass them which doesn't mean we've got to have a higher, tougher set of rules which we can show we are able to do. Yes. No, no, no. He's saying it's, it, the game, is, we're talking about true righteousness. And true righteousness will be that you love your enemies, that you're able not even to have lust in your heart, that you are not committing adultery because you're, living a pure, you're getting purity from the inside out. It works from the inside out. God's always wanted that, says Jesus. No, he's wanted your whole heart to be different. It's not about do you keep this little rule or that rule more accurately. You are going to be taken into a different realm of righteousness, the true righteousness God went wants. Let's be utterly clear. I'm getting towards the end, and we're going to end with one verse in a moment. Let's utterly clear what's happened, what's happening. Jesus fulfilled everything that that the Father wanted. And that applies to you and me. So the law that God gave, the holiness of God and my sin cannot coexist. I think we can underestimate that. Let's Let's just review that for a second. So we don't get, we today are not brilliant at getting this. So let's get it now. If you think of God's holiness as like light, when the light, 
is on or the sun is shining, you do not get darkness in the room. You don't get a blob of darkness floating about when you put the light on. The holy presence of God judges and expels sin, full stop. That is not negotiable. That will never change. You can't say he's a bit of a meanie. It's the difference. It's like saying, well, it's a bit mean on light to push darkness out. They do not coexist. Indeed, darkness is simply the absence of light. And the holiness of God is such that you cannot bring even your best efforts into his presence and somehow that's okay even though you've done lots of bad things. You know, that's, that's thinking something like, well, I've done a lot of bad things, but I've done a lot of good things as well. And there's a bit of a bargain going. No, no, you, in your heart, you are sinful. Not everything you do is wrong, but a lot of it's pretty tarnished with envy and pride and whatever. And some things are okay. But in the end, you, that's not good enough. You, are you like Jesus? Exactly like Jesus? Probably not. Well, that's the standard. Now what do we do? Well, Jesus fulfills the law's demand for you and takes your condemnation and it's removed in the cross. That's wonderful. Jesus then credits you with his righteousness. God says, well, I've taken that away. You're clothed with my son. You are accepted in the beloved. Oh, wonderful. I'm accepted in Christ. I'm a child of God. And not only that, you really are a child of God because the Holy Spirit comes on you and you're birthed inside. And something begins to change on the inside out. And God is able to say, wow, we're going we're gonna to get where I really wanted to be. The righteousness of the law will be fulfilled in those who walk in the Spirit and follow after the Spirit. Let's look at a verse. One last, my last verse. 1 John uh, 2.6, the last one. This is something that... I wonder if you've even noticed it. I'm sure you have. Many of you have been Christians a long while. But I've always found this a really challenging verse and it's an exciting verse as well. Look at it. Whoever claims to live in him, that is in Christ, whoever claims to be a Christian, must live as Jesus did. There you go. <laughs> is that a challenge or not? I find it quite challenging. But it's actually not like, well, that's ridiculous. It's, it's to raise your faith. Remind you of a few other verses. If you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. I've already referred to them. You know, if you're filled with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit will produce fruit in you. And the fruit will be things like gentleness, meekness, self-control, love, kindness. You know, things that are beyond the law. The flying, the wings. Whoever claims to live in Jesus, John's a bit chunky in the way he puts it, Basically, you've got to live like Jesus then. If you, if you say you're a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit inside you is going to make you live like Jesus. Now, thank God that's how it happens. It's not law. It's the Spirit of Christ in you. But the Holy Spirit will be drawing you on to live like Jesus. So when you become a Christian, you often get more aware of your sin than before you were a Christian. I don't know if you found that. But I've multiple times seen that historically as I've seen people come Christian. They come a Christian and they say, oh, I've had people say literally what I'm about to tell you. Oh, I remember one middle-aged lady. She was quite, quite a nice lady. She was a school teacher. Got saved, completely non-Christian background. Got saved and she was in, in, in our foundations group and uh, Hastings. And she said, I, I've just got people talking about what's it meant since you've been a Christian. She said, do you know, she said, I, I'm so embarrassed at the birthday cards I used to send. I always sent these sort of sexy, dirty birthday cards to my 
friends. And, you know, she said, now I'm a blush when I think. She said, I'm always looking for verses, but, but cards with verses in them. I mean, she's a really nice lady. So she wasn't sort of being all pompous. She was like, I want to say something positive. I want to say something nice. I don't want to say, you know, something smutty. And I mean, and you think, isn't that funny? You see, uh, six months ago, she couldn't care less. She was out there finding the dirtiest card she could, made a smirk. And suddenly she thought, why am I doing that? Ooh, now what? I didn't tell her. I didn't say, right, we have a set of rules here at this church. First one is clean birthday cards or none at all. <laughs> second, second, these are the newspapers you can read, none at all. These are the films you can watch, the Mary Poppins and The Sound of Music. That's the only ones. Now, and, and you know, so on and so on and so on. And so on. That's nonsense. What happens is something's happened inside her. There's a new holiness. There's a spirit of God saying, don't send them those cards. Bless them. Send them something uplifting. Yeah. Do, you, do you see what I mean? And there'll be a thousand examples. That's why you can't do it by rules. It doesn't work. You couldn't make enough. There'd be a book that fat and it still wouldn't do it. You do it. This is the miracle of the gospel. You get filled with the Spirit. You walk in the Spirit and you begin to live a bit more like Jesus lived. It's good, isn't it? I love it. We're going to finish there. It's a very challenging but it's also encouraging. I want to raise your faith, even as I hope I challenge you about your own walk with God. Thank you.